At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Mbikura, the World Messenger, and I'm inviting you for another epic episode of Legacy Leader Show. Today, I have a very special guest that is going to be sharing not only about her personal journey, but also something that is very close and dear to her heart, her heritage. What a perfect way to celebrate her heritage because it's also Heritage Month from very special culture, as well the way she preserves that culture through spoken and written words and helping others not only to be published, but also to be seen and heard. Without further ado, let me introduce you to my special guest today, Andriana Rosales. Andriana, welcome. Thank you, Isabella. I'm so excited to be here with you and share and have this conversation with you. Likewise, obviously so much to you, more than I just mentioned in this introduction, but I purposely wanted to let you share more things about uh, what else do you do besides having this amazing publishing opportunity for a lot of artists that never thought and never could see themselves writing a book or being sharing their spoken word specifically in other language. So before we get into that, do you mind sharing as we celebrate the Heritage Month, what culture are you from and what we're celebrating in month of September? Yes, so September is Latino Heritage Month or Hispanic Heritage Month for a lot of people who use the either Latino or Hispanic. And uh, it's a time where in Mexico, they celebrate September 16th. And in the United States, it's also celebrated. But the United States is usually known for Cinco de Mayo, which is something completely different. So there's, there's this conversation on who celebrates Cinco de Mayo, which is more of the American um, uh, celebrations. It's on a calendar. And then September 16th, which is celebrated in Mexico and for the Latinos that are also in the United States. So, yes. Yeah. And do you mind sharing from which country you from then and then how you identify yourself and a little bit about your upbringing that also springboard where you here today? Yes. So I, I was born and raised in California and I'm the daughter of immigrant parents from Mexico. And I um, live in two worlds where I was born and raised in California, but when I was really small, my parents would take us to Mexico. I went to school in Mexico. I think it was like first, second, third grade. And then um, my parents uh, decided to come back to uh, the United States. I had to learn English all over again because while I was in Mexico, I was going to Mexican schools and had to learn uh, when I came back, which is very difficult for me to learn the language all over again. But I was young enough where I was able to pick it up. Um, not that easy, but I, I was able to pick it up. And so I don't, um, you know, when people ask me, what nationality are you? I always say Mexican. Uh, it, that's just what comes out of me. Um, 
for whatever reason. I think it's because of the way that I was raised, but you know, in all reality on paper, I'm Mexican American. I was born and raised here. Never really felt like I was part of America for, for a lot of different reasons. And then when I would go visit Mexico and I still do, cause I'm, I have a lot of relatives there. Um, they don't consider me Mexican. So mm -hmm. it's a, an interesting dynamic because there's millions of us who are born and raised here who are from immigrant parents in Mexico, and we don't feel like we're part of uh, America. This has been, of course, my personal journey and a lot of the writers that, that, um, that I help publish, they have very similar, very similar stories. Um, this is not to say that um, the country hasn't embraced me, um, but the experiences that I've had have, have, um, have been really interesting. Um, I've worked throughout the years and have had a lot of coaching uh, in my personal development where I learned to reframe the stories that I tell myself about growing up in the United States. And uh, it's been an interesting journey. So that's um, a part of how I, I identify, if you will. You know, and at the end of the day, I really just identify as a human being on the planet. <laughs> so once you get up into the higher level conversations, right, it's really not even about any kind of um, identity or anything. It is really about being human on the planet. And um, I like really? to go, I, I like to end it that way, you know, so. Sure, it's all about humanity, but it's also very important to know where we came from, where our roots mm -hmm. are. Oh, absolutely honor and cherish those roots celebrate them and also because of those roots bring such a diverse perspective and spectrum that truly is serving in wide range of organizations uh, but also small enterprises and in general society as a result of that because every culture brings uh, such a beautiful tapestry to everything that brings and creates what united states of america is today so with that in mind, I'm curious, obviously, you are between two worlds, and I can kind of relate to that. And I'm sure so many listeners that have been immigrated to United States, like myself, actually, uh, and it's first generation American from Europe, but also others that might be also new to the country or even first or second generation, uh, feeling like you don't belong in either of those worlds because uh, you, you feel like for Europe, you know, for example, I'm not necessarily anymore I've seen as a European, I'm like too Americanized, whatever that means, oh. right? But it's so important what you just said, how important it is, how do you feel and how do you find the roots and place to call it home? Do you mind elaborating a little bit about that? So, yes, yeah, so my my uh, parents immigrated to the United States in the late 60s. <clears throat> I was born in 1975 and it was, it, of course, in the United States, it was a different time. And I remember my father teaching me as I got older and in, in, in imprinting in me that life would be hard because I was Mexican and that no one would respect me and that no one would think I was smart. And because of that reality, I had to be, I had to work harder than everybody else. I had to show up when I said I would show up, I have to keep my word. I have to be better than everybody else. I had to try harder than everybody else and I had to work very, very hard just to even meet others' expectations. And so I grew up in, in a way, uh, we, we there's six of us in my family. So 
my father raised us like we were boys, we were tomboys. It was a really harsh way of growing up in the United States and in, and in Mexico as well, which is interesting because in, in the United States, we grew up seeing the American school system and the yellow buses and how all kids had TVs and we lived in the in a in the suburbs, but we were the only Latina family in the suburbs where our house looked different because in the suburbs we were the only house that had like chickens in the back and, and we had like a almost like a little ranch in the back and everybody knew we were like the Mexican family in that in that um in that in the um in the street where we lived. And then when when I was you know, really young, I also lived in Mexico and I got to see what poverty really was. And it was like a culture shock because I saw kids that didn't, they were just out in the street selling gum and selling stuff to like eat for the day. And so it was like a, a shock to, I believe, to my nervous system to see those two worlds. So I was always really confused as a little kid because I didn't know if I belonged in Mexico, because when I was in school, we would we would pledge of allegiance to the Mexican flag. And then when I was in the American schools, I was pledging of allegiance to the American flag. And I thought, well, which how come I have two flags and why is there all this confusion? <laughs> and no mm -hmm. one explained to me, which I think parents should explain to their children what's going on. But in your in my situation, it was a really hard upbringing. And uh, and I just learned that life would be tough, you know? And then of course, later through a lot of coaching and therapy, I learned that um, it's all about language and we need to educate ourselves about what language to use in order for us to, to do better in life and to see the world differently than in my case, than how I had, I had um, than how I had been programmed to believe life would be. So I, I grew up being very proud of being Mexican. I grew up my, in fact, my parents wouldn't allow us to speak English in the house. It was like forbidden. You can't speak English because you can learn English at school. And when you're in the house, it's Spanish. And it was horrifying for my father, my mother to uh, listen to us speak Spanish without saying it correctly. So I grew up very scared to not pronounce Spanish correctly because then I would be seen as less than a real Mexican. And then in, in school, I was um, in ESL, uh, which is English as a second language. And the teachers that I had were not Latino. So when they were trying to teach me the English language, I felt, and I've written a lot about this, is I felt like it was a burden. Like they had to teach me a language and you know that I was, that I was quote unquote stupid because I couldn't pick up the language. And looking back, I was a really smart, street smart kid and in in quite witty uh, i just had a difficulty learning the um, the language and so i grew up um you know with a lot of turmoil with my identity which was very different than my cousins who grew up in mexico born and raised in mexico went to universities uh, well educated and then you know there's us and in me i'm talking about me in particular who grew up in the united states with all the opportunities of the world but not knowing who i was and so that becomes the conflict when a young girl doesn't know who she is because she doesn't fit in America or in Mexico. And there's like, nobody's having it in the 70s, 80s, 90s, nobody's having this conversation about this, um, that you could be both. You can, I can both be American 100% and I can be Mexicana 100% and it's okay. So um, I hope that answered your questions. 
it's yes, a complicated it subject. Yes, it does. And it's so important. And I'm glad you shared that because I'm sure so many people can relate to that because we're seeing a lot of changes and we're seeing a lot of people coming from uh, different parts of the world consistently to United States uh, and then from different statuses, but ultimately uh, immigrating and wanting to and have a desire to stay for better opportunities, either is um, because of environmental issues or because of wars or because of just simply uh, better opportunities. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that everybody who experienced that or had someone, if not firsthand, someone in their classroom or their working environments can see, can relate to others' confusions, if not on a personal level. So with this in mind, again, as we're looking at things, uh, obviously, you also served, you were in military and you served this United, United States uh, in military, which I first of all want to say thank you for your service. Uh, so you have a very interesting background. And uh, do you mind sharing how that came about and how did you felt um, during that time as you were exploring um, your true calling and what you should be doing in your life? Yeah, so I was in the United States Air Force and I'm forever grateful for my military service because it really helped me it helped me gain the confidence that I needed as a young girl to do whatever it was I wanted to do in life. And um, when I was in high school, I scored, I, I, I think I graduated with like a 3.8 and I went into a four-year university uh, to San Jose State. And I was there for a couple of years. And after a couple of years at, at a four-year university, I realized that I was not college bound. Like a lot of Latino students who who don't have a trajectory of having anybody in the family go to college for the first time. I just wasn't prepared. I didn't know how to study. Um, and I also had a belief. And this is, I hope we, we, we get to talk about this, about this, our belief system. So I had a belief as a young girl that, um, that poor kids didn't get college degrees. This is what I believed. You know, Later, I found out through a lot of coaching, this wonderful coach, Denise Soler, who who made it obvious to me uh, through a coaching session that I did with her that this was my belief. And so after two years in college and I was not doing well, I decided, well, I need food and shelter. And thank God for the United States Air Force. I scored high enough to get into the United States Air Force. And I um, actually got the job that I that I wanted, which was working in, in, um, in a command post and I was stationed in a, um, I was in space command working with Lockheed Martin and NASA. And uh, it was like a young girl's dream job. <laughs> wow. It was, it was amazing. amazing. It was amazing. I um, learned so it much. It is a dream job from other girls, bigger girls, grown up girls. <laughs> anyway, please. <laughs> it was, it was wonderful. And at the time I, got to travel to different parts of the world. I got to live in different countries and I got to, um, in particular, where I was stationed at was a Navy base. It was um, in the 90s. There was this space called Moffett Field and next to it was this um, building called the Blue Cube, which was declassified in 1998, I believe. It has now been demolished, but um, it was working with satellites and um, got to work with Lockheed engineers and got to be part of some really um, neat programs. And um, I just remember thinking, wow, 
how how does a, a Latina Mexican kid uh, who grew up, I grew up working in the fields, picking strawberries with my dad during the summers. How do I, how did I end up here? You know, and uh, what the military gave me at, at a young age was this confidence and this ability to learn how to work with other people, all different types of people from all over the world, and then also experience other countries. Because what happens is, I don't know if you know the stats on how many Americans actually have passports, but not very many. And so those of us who have passports who travel, we see the world different. When we come back to the States, you realize a lot of privileges that Americans have. And you don't know that, I believe, is my opinion, my humble opinion, that you don't realize that until you leave the, the United States and you go to other countries and you see how other people live. And then you come back and you're like, wow, you know, I'm overlooking this opportunity. I'm, I'm not seeing the reality of how the world is shaped um, and how the world globally functions. So I owe that experience to the United States Air Force because when I got out of the military, um, I realized um, two things. One, that I could do anything I wanted, that I didn't need a degree to do it, and that I could change the world if I if I applied myself, if I had you know the right mentors and the right um, the right people, if I was working alongside the right people, and um, I, I would have done my twenty year career in the military, but I also um, because I grew up in a very harsh environment when my father was very militant and my father you know as I said earlier had indoctrinated me into these belief systems and I later had to change. Um, I felt that if I stayed in the military for longer, that I would, my heart would become harder and harder and harder. And I already had a very uh, tough persona. I had a very tough personality and I didn't want to be that because I knew that inside I was not this tough person, that this persona that I, that I was showing to the world was just a persona to survive. So I did my, it was an eight year contract that I did with the Air Force and it was for active or inactive. And uh, once that was over, when I, when I left, I think I was 24 years old and I, I told myself, well, I want to continue to travel. I wasn't married, no kids. And um, I had walked into, at the time in the Bay Area, into the most prestigious marketing firm, um, George P. Johnson Company. And I just went in and I asked to talk to the VP to get an interview. <laughs> with like no degree, no background, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think it was like an hour interview and they hired me on the spot because I was so confident that I believed that I could do it. And, you know, the rest is history. I, because of that opportunity, I had a lot of other opportunities in the corporate world and the Air Force gave me that. The Air Force gave me that, um, that uh, what we say in, in Spanish is like the cojones to do that kind of, um, to approach life in that way. And so I'm forever, I'm forever indebted to the United States Air Force for, for giving me that. That's fantastic. With those cojones, you built so <laughs> many other great things, which is fantastic. And I love um, how you continue to stay curious and further develop and overcome beyond what you were born into or felt like you inherited as you pointed out um that 
it's impossible for you to have education or have a maybe different life than uh, generationally than everybody in your family, et cetera. And I just want to, again, kudo you uh, for service, for opportunity to really show for everybody watching and listening that we can re reinvent ourselves, but also that we can, with confidence and right mindset, achieve so much more. But I am blown away what you did afterwards. Obviously, you did, you are doing something that's very, very amazing right now. You're helping so many women and men, of course, to really be heard and to be seen through their published books, through their work of heart. Uh, and when we were mentioning, do you, how many people are just in general have a passports in America? How many published books exist that are also published in Spanish and from Spanish authors? That's even more rare. Wouldn't you say that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the United States, the of course, the statistics are different in Latin America, but in the United States, there's a very small percent of um, Latino published authors and uh, authors that are going into the larger publishing houses and being offered the large advances. So there's a, there was a need, it was four years ago, uh, right during the pandemic, where I had to shift as most people in the world have to shift because of the pandemic. In particular, those of us who are entrepreneurs are running our own business. And at the time I was doing large corporate events, doing certification programs through my own proprietary work and decided, you know, overnight because of the pandemic, everything shut down and there was no more travel. There was no more conferences. And um, I had to take a hard look at my business model and, um, I had a, a moment of inspiration and I said, well, you know, I had already published several books and I said, I, I already know how to do this. It seems fairly easy. And uh, I have the, you know, the time, the money and the energy to learn how to do this. And I was like, why don't I just show other people how to do it? But even more so, who really needs it? And then I thought, well, definitely women uh, and definitely Latina women. So it all started with like this idea of, hey, uh, let me get a hundred Latina women published. And um, and we're not gonna charge, it's going to be a free program because one of the things that I that I realized while I was, um, I guess, drumming up this, this business model was what did I learn from my mentors and my teachers up to, to that point? And one of the big things that I had learned um, and, and um, you're familiar with this because you're a, the, the leadership guru, right? Is like, whatever you do, whatever business you do, you focus on contribution. Yes, making money is great and that's, but that's secondary, it's massive contribution. And so at the time I said, how can I help the most people? And I said, uh, how can I contribute at a mass level? How can I make an impact? And for me, what had worked for me in the years was that when I had published several books that they really opened doors for me. And I said, what, what would it be like to have those who wish to be published, to get published and to, and to, to help them with the barrier to entry where they don't have to worry about so much the details or the money piece, but hey, let me show you, walk you through this part. And, and we do, we started doing anthologies. And um, at first I thought, okay, well, this is going to be something for the Latinos here in the United States and it'll continue to grow. And then within a year and a half, I realized that 
you know, all these people wanted to participate and so did the men. So I started getting, you know, uh, men wanting to, to participate. And then next thing you know, two years later, it's like 17 different countries. <laughs> I was like, how did this happen? It was like way, way beyond anything I had thought of or expected. And, um, now we're on our third volume. We just launched or are launching in the next couple of days the uh, men's version, which is a power series that we're doing uh, with the men that contributed. And it's men from all over, Latino men from all over Latin America. And believe it or not, Latinos are everywhere. I mean, we have Latinos who, who uh, wrote, are like, they're from Israel, from Japan, from Africa. And uh, I thought, well, who knew? You know, so it's been a really fun and just a blessing to get to know all these writers and their stories and get to learn um, that we all as human beings have the same motivations and the same the same wants and needs and aspirations in some way or another. And everybody is just shaped differently in the way that they share their story. But, but we all have this need to be heard and to feel love and to contribute in some way. And so the uh, subtitle of our book is um, uh, Leaving Our Legacy, Inspiring the Next Generation. <laughs> which is the theme, which is the, the, those are the themes of the, of the, the, all of the stories. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. And you and the Legacy Leader Show, and to me, obviously, both of us have a very strong leadership background. You've been trained with John Maxwell, uh, leadership uh, methodologies and whatnot. But in the same time, to me, I feel legacy is the crown jewel it's a top tier of all leadership because ultimately is why we're leading why we're existing why we want to lead better why we want to be uh supporting in others and ultimately why we want to be known for what we want in our yes. legacy to be not just what we're leaving behind as we're also living right now and leading what kind of impact we're creating and how is that impacting others? And since like, not only you are able to do that uh, very well um, today, because obviously uh, with work that you expanded into, which is phenomenal, but as they say, spoken word and written word, specifically written word is the one that has the most impact for future mm -hmm. generation because it's preserved, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I love that. John, you know, as you mentioned, John Maxwell um, really imprinted that in me, where when I started doing the John Maxwell program, I think I was one of the second classes. I know when I was in Florida, there was only 500 John Maxwell coaches in the world at that time. And he was my mentor that taught me that it wasn't about making the moolah, <laughs> you know, it was like, because up until that point in my corporate career and in my business, I was always like, what's the bottom line? What's the profit margin? And then I went into finance. And then so my, my jargon and my wording was all about what's the bottom line. And he's the one who taught me how are you impacting? What's the contribution? How many people are you helping? And, you know, what legacy are you leaving? And so to me, that really touched me. And I said, oh, I, my philosophy in life hasn't been, um, not that it wasn't right, but it was, I had to shift it into something that, that was really more aligned with who I wanted to be at that time in my heart and in the world. And so it was such an important um, understanding or uh, perceived reality for me because 
you see it for me at that moment, it was like, I was doing all the right things, you know, um, had a great career was, I thought I was, you know, doing well financially and everything, but I was misdirected in the direction of, um, my heart. And so I love, um, these conversations about helping people shift that shift that, yeah, you can have all the material things in the world, but it is, uh, that I love that, um, that quote, it's what, it's not what you leave behind, um, material, material things, but it's what you leave in the hearts of men that really matter. And so that was always a quote that I remembered, what am I going to leave behind in the hearts of men? And for me, it was, when I thought about the Latinas 100 project, it was like, well, you know, if I were to die tomorrow, I want to be able to say, um, that I helped him in some way. And I get teary-eyed because I'm like thinking, yeah, if, if I can have that kind of impact, then I've done my job. Um, and I realized through a lot of uh, coaching and therapy that the reason why that was so important for me, it was because I, I never felt heard in growing up. I never felt heard in the United States. I never felt heard um, as definitely as a, as a Latina, I never felt hurt in the United States. I never felt hurt as a woman. And, uh, and for me, the Latinas 100 Project was me almost giving that to myself and to other women that have never felt heard. And so because of coaching and, and, and I always share, you know, if you can get a mentor and a coach, definitely get, you know, get the best. And for me, it was like John Maxwell. And then I moved on to other coaches, um, like Peter Diamandis and who I, I follow religiously because I believe where he's, where he's taking us in his philosophies and how he talks about artificial intelligence. And so that's a whole other subject, but like, it's important to have those people that will help mold your, um, mold, mold your way of being in the world. And it's really, at the end of the day, it's all about contribution. What are you contributing in this, um, this word legacy is, is is big because not a lot of people think about legacy and i believe in my humble opinion that that is the most important thing <laughs> in life right it's like oh legacy leaving a legacy for your children for for the world you know leave your dent in the universe like i like to say that's amazing and i love again music to my ears because one of the reasons why we're here again on legacy leader show and why a legacy leader show exists it's that consciousness and shift from individual contribution to team contribution and for those enterprises that we're seeing that are impacting billions and billions of people as well of billions of billions of profits and whatnot and what they're staying for right all the way to that singular one individual that can stand and do whatever they can do to feel like they're lived fulfilled life and in the mm -hmm. same time so um contributed to this tapestry that we're talking about to these different heritages different cultures different uh, diverse perspectives and with that in mind, I'm curious, uh, what would you like to be known and remember for? Because you already made it so much impact, but I know that you're just starting. So I'm curious, uh, what would you say, oh, I made it, or I really fulfilled my deep desire and wish? That is the question of a century. I, I've done a lot of work on this and I wanna be remembered as a good mother as a good friend and as a good person. That's what I, that's what, that's the most important thing. 
And, you know, if, if it, what, what I learned just in, in life in general is that it's not so much all the things that you accomplish. It, it really is what, what you leave in here, right? What, what, you, what people feel when they think about you, what people remember you, how you made them feel, like Maya Angelou says so brilliantly, is like how, when people remember you, what is it that they remember? And for me, it would be of definitely, you know, being a good mother, a friend, and, you know, a good person. You know, and I, I think a lot about my father because when he passed away when I was 22, you know, my father was a welder. He worked in the fields and uh, most of his life and then was a welder, didn't get paid very much. And when he died, when we went to his funeral, there was like 500 people there wow. at his funeral. And I, and I didn't know any of these, most of them, I didn't, I didn't know who these people were, but apparently my father had, was such a wonderful person. He had made so many friends and there was these, these men that he worked with who had a picture of him and they put it on top of his casket and they were just crying. And, you know, everybody was just so sad that this man, my father had passed away. And I looked around and I was like, I wish, and I hope that when I die, that I, there's, that there's, you know, even half of, <laughs> half of what I see here, you know? So to me, that was a really beautiful example that you don't have to, you know, achieve, 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 especially here in the United States that we're so driven for success and driven to achieve all of these accolades and all of these degrees and certifications and all these things. None of it really matters because I get my dad's example and it's like, look at how many people he impacted. So many people loved him. And, you know, he wasn't a perfect guy, but like to have 500 people at your funeral, I mean, that was big. That was like, that's big. And so I, I'm so privileged to have been his daughter, you know, so. That's so beautiful. Um, and it's also something for everybody. And I'm sure as we get older, that we start thinking of it. And then when one, that day comes, when all of us obviously will at some point die and transition, what happens then? And what did we, again, lived do we have a regrets do we have on uh, unfinished business do we have things that we never felt like we uh healed or said or accomplished right mm -hmm. so i think it's a, such a journey for every single individual and for everybody watching and listening i know that a lot of people are right now going through major transformation and they're not sure where they're headed they're not sure what to listen one way they want to um, secure their existence on the other hand they want to listen to you as you mentioned earlier Earlier, their heart and how do you match that and how do you make um, meaningful life but also something that can sustain you so for everybody watching and listening for someone also who came from that sense of a lack and 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 and, and sense of that it's not in your cards to be able to accomplish big things for someone again who did accomplish a lot of things what would be the piece of advice for everybody that at least can take out as a one action or a one way of looking at things to really better themselves um, and tap into that new wisdom. One of the greatest things that I ever did um, for my own professional and personal development was get a mentor. And like I said earlier, 
I had a way of thinking in my 30s. It was all about achieving, 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 and more and more and more. <clears throat> and I was really blessed that way. But then once I got into the John Maxwell program and then continued to uh, learn from Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweiler, you know, Bruce Lipton and Greg Braid, I mean, I can name hundreds of, of um, people that I've met, writers that I've met that have sh helped shift me and help, help mold me uh, to be a better human being. Um, get a mentor. And when you get a mentor, listen to your mentor and implement what you what you learn. And then also, you know, Warren Buffett's infamous saying, invest in yourself first. You have to invest in yourself. So while I was when I was in the corporate world, when I was making all my my corporate money, it was on it was not a on fancy car and a fancy house, although those things are nice, but it was on going to conferences, getting into coaching programs, reading, you know, um, getting all my getting all my stickers at Audible because I'm listening to the books and just improving. And so number one, getting a mentor, number two, learn to learn, learn how to learn and then continue to learn and then shift. You, we, we're human beings, we're like, plants, flowers, trees, if we don't water them, if we don't water ourselves, we die. And so we have to keep learning. And so that's been my greatest strength is that I'm a learner. I love to, to learn and, and I listen. Like when, when um, John was talking to us and talking to me about how, hey, you know, your priorities are all about achieving, achieving, achieving. What about legacy and contribution and helping the masses and all this? And then, you know, I had to swallow my pride and say oh yeah that's true I've only been uh, accumulating wealth <laughs> it's like that's great that's a total American thing to do right like you just accumulate wealth but at the end of the day you're not taking anything with you you're really not so it really is mass contribution and I love I love like this is my favorite part of what I do with the publishing is I love when um, I pick a young writer or any writer who never in their wildest dreams thought that they could publish, they could be a published author. And then when they get their book and they open the box and then they're going through and they see their name and like that look for me is like priceless. <laughs> like, it's so amazing. Like, oh, I helped them. I helped them achieve this. And it's so gratifying for me to see that. And so that's what mentorship has done for me. And and I, if, if you're, if you're coming up in the world and you're not quite sure about, you know, your direction in life, get a mentor, get a mentor and, you know, read the great minds. You know, I always, of course, because I gravitate towards the John and Maxwell uh, books and his leadership strategy and his leadership worldview. Um, but there's so many people that you can learn from and, and get a mentor, learn and don't spend your money on, on stuff. <laughs> spend it spend it in your spend it on your mind spend it on your on understanding the heart that was another beautiful beautiful piece that that I've been gifted with is this journey has brought me closer to understanding my heart better and understanding that you know yes truly the, the longest journey you will ever have is from your from your head to your heart and once you once you take that journey the world shifts for you the world shifts in such a way where life seems magical and you get opportunities that show up for you and then you're kind of like what I, I like sometimes I'll be on stage and I'm like what am I doing here like how did I even get here 
because I'm just like some kid from from the Bay Area who grew up picking strawberries with my dad, my Mexican dad, you know, and um, life is so beautiful that way. It's so beautiful when you shift to contribution and when you get a mentor who's guiding you. It's so, so important. So I love that. And uh, which is true also that it's obviously never too late and it's okay to have a multiple mentors and it's okay yes. to ask for different things depending what we're interested in. I love that you mentioned Peter uh, Diamandis and very much familiar with his Singularity University teachings and what they established there and a lot of shifts in recent years, but also others, as you pointed out, because we involve and in different stages, we need and crave for different types of supports. But then we also have the ones that we're always, as, a, as they're our staple, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Joan Maxwell and his work. Uh, so everybody watching and listening again, find that magical mentor that means to you or mentors mm -hmm. and uh, make that happen. Um, but I would love to also for everybody that's watching and listening to really understand how they can engage if they want to publish the book, specifically if they are part of the Latina heritage and they also never thought about possibility that is possible for them to be published authors, how that works. Easy. You just go to latinas100.com and all the information is there. Uh, simply, you know, read through the PDF that we send you. There's a lot of, um, you know, the about five pages of our process. Submit your story and then wait to hear from our editors to see if you qualify for the next volume. We're on volume four right now, which will be published next year. And um, it's, you know, very, very simple. And, um, you know, just go, go on the webpage. You can go to adriana.company, which is my business webpage. And then there's other types of publishing and services that we offer and um, different types of anthologies um, that we're right in the middle of. So it's very simple. That's awesome. But you are also, of course, helping others. So, for example, if I wanted to get help to get published or anybody uh, that is watching, listening and it's contemplating, you are also helping others to get published. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So I'm working with seven different authors right now where it's a one on one and they're writing their memoir slash biography. And, um, you know, those are separate packages, which it's a lot more uh, intense and more individual. It's more of a of a one on one basis where I travel to whatever city, wherever, wherever you live, whatever. And I uh, coach you through the process if you if you need that um, all based on assessments so um so yes so that's um that's a lot of fun to do and I don't I only help 25 authors a year so it's a very limited very limited list that I have and um yeah you, you can reach out to me at um aliana.company and all my information is there that's fantastic. So you're working on average two hours per month. You're handpicking them and selecting them, but you're doing some amazing work. And obviously, as a result, uh, not only they get published and uh, great ranking and great viewership and great sales, but they also get great exposure because they have great stories to tell. 
So I'm curious in that, with that in mind, what were some of the most epic things that you uh, discovered since you started doing this and in terms of stories that something that touches you the most or was tremendously rewarding? That would be number one question. And number two, where do you see publishing going with everything that is happening right now? So everybody watching and listening that never thought as executives or leaders that actually they may even have a book in them. I'm curious uh, for them to hear where things are headed at the current time. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, um, what uh, what are new things happening in the publishing world? What was the first question? Uh, what story of experience? Oh. Uh, what story you got the most passionate about that you experienced through your mm -hmm. publishing avenues and helping others to share that story? Okay, um, so when we launched the very first volume, volume one for the Latinas 100 project, of course, I thought initially that it would be Latinas from the United States and it would be, you know, women like me who grew up uh, first generation from immigrant parents and, you know, struggle with the same identity issues and everything. And little did I know that there was gonna be a lot of interest for from writers from Mexico. So I have relatives in Mexico and I made some great connections where, where I'm working alongside um, a university professor that, who gets this, who gathers the stories and um, he helps get the stories for the, the, the uh, Latin America um, pipeline, if you will, of writers. And uh, we had one writer, her name is Guadalupe, who um, you know, grew up in Morelia in the Southern part of Mexico and, um, joined our we have a private Facebook group that where the writers can join and you we um, share stories in that group and it's a private group so everybody can you know share um and it can be you know um it's a very intimate space and and only people who participate in the volumes can can contribute or whatnot and so she was a wonderful addition to the community because she was always very active in the community and everybody just loved her and for the first volume and for all the volumes, we do a contest and that contest is let's see who has the best essay. And a lot of the editors, we get together and we decide, well, which one's the best essay? In volume one, it was Guadalupe, had a great story about her, how she lost her father and her brother and um, how she grew up really humbly in, um, in, in this part of Mexico. And she was basically raised by one of the Catholic priests there. And just a very interesting, intimate story that she shared. But she was also struggling with um, a lot of health issues. And uh, just through my interaction with her throughout the whole year, because it takes us a year to do uh, each book, because we 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 do a lot of um, particular things with the stories and we get we actually get to know the writers. And so um, I get to know Guadalupe and realize that she's very ill. And one of the biggest things that she had in her life goal in her life in her bucket list was to be published. And so I'm finding out more about her and learning more about her. And she everybody loved her in the group. And when COVID hit, the end right around the end of COVID, um, you know, I I find out that she passed, she passed away. And it was very difficult. Um for me and everybody in the group, because we all knew that she was the winner of the essay and that the greatest thing that had ever happened to her was to be published in this book. And she was just so 
excited about being part of this community. And we really had at that time, by the time volume one was, was done, like we had created this amazing group of women and a few men. And, uh, I couldn't believe it. it just hit me so hard, you know, that she had, she had passed. And then, and then it dawned on me that that was probably in, according to our family, the only piece of literature that she had left behind. The only, the only written word that people would see for, for the future, that if, if a student at a college or at a library picks up that book, that, that that would be the only thing left of her, like that would be the, her, her only footprint, you know? Um, Cause she wasn't very active on social media, but like there was like this, this official published book with her story in it. And I, it was like a bittersweet moment for me because I thought, oh, we helped her do that. And unfortunately she's not here with us anymore, you know, but um, it, I realized at that moment that the reason why I had started all of this was way, way deeper than I could have ever imagined. It was such a, I mean, I'll leave it, I'll say a mystical moment because I thought, oh, okay, sometimes we think we're doing things for a reason, but then you later on, you find out that you're really doing it because it's so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than us. And I believe in that. I believe in this um this unseen power that that is um guiding us and as long as we take the first step and we do what is in our hearts to do that then things are revealed to you and so that was a um a watershed a watershed moment for me where i it dawned on me this was something that um was really powerful that the written the written word is so powerful and publishing is so powerful and that um, and the Latinas take control and take not not a backseat, but to actually drive the car to so we narrate our own stories. We share our own stories on how we see and perceive the world. Not somebody else, not somebody else tell me what they think about me, but what I think about what's going on in my world. And that's what I lacked growing up, that I wasn't reading books from Latinas with the same experience. It was the version of what people thought I was living, not what I was actually living because it was not, there hasn't been enough writers, um, Latina writers, definitely not enough where we are writing our own stories. And so, yeah, so that was one of those really impactful moments where, um, you know, books live forever. You know, the written word lives forever and you never die. So what a beautiful opportunity also for family to continue to cherish her legacy as well as also her memory. And, and those are the elements why we also see how important it is, again, the books and written word. And lastly, I ask if you don't mind, because obviously demand for books is just growing and we are seeking more and more information. So what's your expert advice of how where is publishing headed so that everybody that are on the fence or eager or interested in doing something uh, can do uh, and take action? Yeah, so publishing is headed in a really positive and good direction. Although that doesn't seem to be uh, what people think, because 
there's a lot of conversation around this fear. Oh no, ChatGPT is here, AI is here. Now people can just you know write books at the touch of a button, which is not true. Um, you, we can use artificial intelligence to enhance um, the way uh, we write and assist. So I like you know AI assistance and things like that. And you know that I believe that in our in our publishing industry there should be a level of integrity where we use these tools, but we use them with integrity. And if you look at what's happening in the publishing world, in terms of the established, you know, big four is what we call the big four publishing companies in the United States. Um, you know, they're, I believe in my humble opinion that they're getting a little bit scared because Ever since the introduction of Amazon and the KDP program and how uh, most people are deciding to self-publish um, because it's so inexpensive and the learning curve is very, very small, um, you know, they're they also the big four publishing companies are seeing how successful an indie publisher can be without the need of um, the traditional way of publishing. So um, a good example would be um, Mel Robbins, who wrote um, The Five-Minute Rule. I think it, her book is called The Five-Minute Rule. She self-published her own book, which was unheard of in the publishing industry. Like somebody like her, who's like a total celebrity and has her own show, would typically be published by the one of the big major um, big major publishing houses, but even she is jumping on the wagon to to shift the way uh, publishing is done in the United States. Now, I can only speak for the United States because I'm heavily, you know, um, indoctrinated in the way that publishing works here in the United States. But when uh, we work with different printing presses in Latin America, but here in the United States. It's shifting. So I also want to mention for those people who are listening and who have an interest in, in the publishing world, um, highly recommend that everybody read uh, Seth Godin's book called um, The Idea, Unleashing the Idea Virus. And it was a book that I had that I had read probably oh, 15, yeah, 15 years ago. And in that book, he discloses how um, you go about selling a book and how the industry is changing. And, even 15 years ago, I knew that uh, publishing would be disrupted because it's massive disruption, but it's a good thing because the disruption is helping the average person, the person who has a small business and the entrepreneur who really wants to shift in terms of their business model um, to also get a piece of the pie. So. It, to answer your question, where publishing is heading? Oh my God, there's so much opportunity. Like I can't even sleep at night because I I'm like thinking of all of the the projects that I want to launch because publishing is not the same. Publishing is definitely not the same. Uh, not even five to not even last year. Like everything is shifting. So for those people who are prepared, who have the right mentors, who have the right uh, philosophy about how the publishing world can help you uh, in any industry. Like it, you can publish a book in, in if you're an engineer, if you're, uh, of course, if you're a speaker in, in your coaching is uh, like obvious, but like, you know, if you are, um, you know, uh, you know, somebody at home taking care of your children, you could, you could have it in any industry. Publishing is now open to everybody. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, 
leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers. Thank you.